I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is David Kelly, co-founder of IDEO, a global design firm that takes a human-centered approach to innovation. IDEO has helped innovate products, including Apple's first mouse in 1980, the first stand-up toothpaste for Procter & Gamble, surgical tools for Medtronic, and furniture for Steelcase. But IDEO also works with governments and social organizations to help transform education systems and deliver social services. David is the founder of the Stanford D School, also known as the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, which emphasizes a multidisciplinary, human-centered approach to innovation. He is the co-author with his brother Tom of Creative Confidence. The book describes a process that helps people realize their creative potential. Welcome. Thank you. When you're in a Boeing 747 <laughs> and you see the laboratory occupied light, how do you feel? <laughs> I remember those days, you know, Boeing was my first job out of college. I was in a group called the Passenger Payloads Group. So anything that's inside of the airplane, you know, the, the stowage bins and the carpets and the seats and that. And so uh, I and my responsibility was in lights and signs. So the panels along the side or the lavatory occupied sign. And your life has taken a different course and you help other companies innovate. But do you have like a reflective moment when you are in an airplane thinking, hmm, you know, I, this is where it all started for me professionally? Um, I always loved planes as a kid. If you were kind of an electrical mechanical engineer like I was or a kid interested in mechanisms and things that move, um, the plane was the kind of most... Um, you know, complex thing you could think of. So yeah, I am sitting there kind of with a better understanding of why it's staying up in the air, I suppose, than the average person. Mm -hmm. And that feels good. I have no fear of flying based on, you know, kind of the understanding of the plane. You grew up in Ohio. You were one of four children. Your father was an engineer at Goodyear, the tire company. Your mother was a housewife. What were some examples of engineering or inventive activities that you did around the house? I was obsessed with kind of taking things apart and seeing how they work. So, you know, the the radio didn't work in the car, and I'd take it apart. And sometimes when you put it back together, it actually worked. Bicycles were the vehicle of choice for a 12-year-old, right? And so I would take my bike apart and sandblast it and paint it a different color or, you know, weld two bicycles together for a tandem long before tandems existed. But, um, yeah, so, you know, like our, uh, as a kid, my, my life was more like uh, if something didn't work, we didn't call the repairman, you know, we... Um, we fix it ourselves. There's a story of you inventing a telephone for a girlfriend. Can you explain that? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I've always made gifts for everybody my whole life. You know, I've never bought a card or rarely bought a gift in a store. I usually make things for people. And and um, this particular girl I was trying to win over, I, I really wanted her to only call me. And so I took a phone and I took it apart and took all the buttons apart and took all the guts out of it and replaced the guts so that if you can think of it as the all the buttons end up pushing the redial button with my number on it underneath. You can't see that. It looks like a normal phone. But any button is really just completely wired directly to the redial button, which I've programmed my phone number on. And so no matter what button she pushed, it called me. So here you are, an inventive youth. You played in a rock band, and your first job was at Boeing, which you did not like. How come? Well, you know, I'm not sure you want, like, uh, a creative 22-year-old changing the way the plane flies, you know what I mean, like, or taking risk. And the excitement for a person like me is to come up with a, an idea that's new to the world. Th- that was not offered as a, as a, young, as a young engineer 
working for Boeing, and so it seemed it seemed mundane. And you know, I'm like a kid right out of Carnegie Mellon, you know, tr- trying to do something exciting. And luckily, uh, Stanford at the time, this is in the mid 1970s, yes. uh, had a had a program, a design program that you heard about as you were carpooling one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you explain how you initially found out about yeah, it? Because sure. in a way, it was sort of a pivot moment for your life. Stanford was the pivot moment in my life. Absolutely, joining Stanford. So uh, it was funny. So I'm working at Boeing, and it's 1973, and it's the gas crisis. I don't know if people who remember 1973. We were standing in lines, and you could only get gas on every other day. And I'm sitting in, and, and so I put up a sign that said, hey, you know, would somebody like to carpool with me? And this guy named Bill Potts answered the, answered the, the, the uh, note, and we started driving together. And he's still one of my best friends today uh, since 1973. And he, um, he had just come from Stanford, and he had been in this program. And so as we're, as we're driving, he kept saying, you've got to go to Stanford. It's perfect for you. It's just perfect for you. And I said, you know, you don't know how bad my grades are. You know, I can't get into Stanford and stuff. Anyway, to make a long story short, he eventually badgered me to the point that I applied. So he was really right. I got to Stanford, and I, that was in 75, and I haven't left. What did design thinking look like when you were a student? Yeah, so Stanford really was the kind of ground zero for what we call design thinking today. I mean, the, there's design, you know, which is kind of was in art schools, which was kind of about aesthetics. What should something look like, especially something new? You know, you know, what's a laptop look like if you've never seen a laptop before, right? Or And so it is magical, and that's why we love certain chairs and we love certain flower pots. But that was in Stanford design. And then there was kind of engineering design, which was, you know, how do you design this rocket so that it gets to the moon? That's mm-hmm. engineering design, right? And Stanford was kind of right in the middle, the, the, um, the kind of combination of kind of art and engineering and kind of, you know, user interaction. You know, how do you interact with a, a door handle or how do you... And so the aesthetics were present and the engineering issues were uh, present and the human issues were present in this Stanford program. Um, started in 1958, actually. And so when I got there, I wasn't the deepest engineer in the room, right? I wasn't as technical as some of my colleagues, and that made it n- made me not as, as viable in certain jobs. And I, I wasn't as um, artistic as some of my friends who were do- who had gone to the art schools, right? But uh, this this kind of common the synthesizing of those things was a perfect fit for me, and that's what the Stanford program was about at the time. So it it did really belong in any of the Stanford product design program really didn't fit in any of the kind of industries that already existed industrial design or engineering design it was its own thing and so that's I'm glad I found it you know because it was the right fit for me you found it and you've perpetuated it taking a more human focused view on the design process so yeah so it, that's the crux if you had to say okay what's the one thing about what we do what we do at Stanford and what we do at IDEO it's this this um, tendency, this this being human-centered as a way to be innovative. Most places are, um, they either have invented a technology and they're trying to see whether humans will like it, or they have a business idea and they'll try, and then they try to see if humans will uh, adapt to it. We do the backwards to that. Our, our approach is we go in and try to understand what people value, what's meaningful to people in a certain area, and then we'll try to invent the other thing. So, and, and what's an example? Examples of that might be improve the experience of taking the train from San Francisco to, 
to Palo Alto. And so they'll go in and they'll um, like look at the whole customer journey. They'll look at finding out about when the train runs, the, about getting to the train, about standing on the platform, about boarding the train, about sitting on the train, about food on the train, about using your thing, and all these little dots in that journey. And then they'll try to figure out how to be um, make each one of those dots extraordinary. Whatever it is that we do, even medical devices, or we look at it from a human perspective and then try to... Um, to try to figure out how to make it really fit, how it will delight the person who's going to use it. Another example is the Embrace Infant Warmer. Yes. Uh, can you describe how that came to be? In the case of Embrace, is a group of students who were um, looking at this notion of incubators because there's so many babies die because of low birth weight in poor developing countries. What they looked at was, um, you know, like how we can make a low-cost incubator because an incubator costs like $2,000. And as they went, our, our methodology does what we call a bias towards action. Just jump right in. So they go to Nepal. They, they go to where the babies are. They go to where the hospitals are. And they find out that the, that the incubators are empty. And the reason is the babies are out in the bush. They're out in the villages. They're not near the hospitals, and they can't get to the hospitals. So they have this idea that what they'll do is they'll make this kind of basically think of it as a... Um, a uh, sleeping bag for babies. And so instead of costing $2,000, it costs like $20, right? And they can distribute them to the doctors and all these um, low birth weight babies can be kept warm and then they have a chance to live. What's interesting about this as an example is being out there in the field really gives you firsthand exposure to things that you could not come up with in the office. For example, they discovered that you shouldn't just say on the instructions heat to 37 degrees Celsius because women have a bias. They see Western medicine as aggressive yeah. and yeah. they thought, well, maybe not 37, maybe 35. And so instead, the students in your class uh, just had an okay signal when yeah. it was warm. Enough. You know, when it got to, oh, okay, this is the kind of thing you learn in our process we, about being iterative and building prototypes. Rather than kind of trying to make it perfect, we just build one. I mean, the normal process, unfortunately, in a lot of companies is to, like, have all the smart people sit around a table and talk about it. You can't imagine what the real issues are. And so not only do we jump in quickly and start building things, but we iterate. You allude to Yoda from Star Wars where he says, do or do not, there is no try. That resonated with me. Just get pen to paper. Just put the prototype out. Yes. We call it bias towards action. Jump in. A crummy first draft is much better than procrastinating. Then it's a, it's a simple a matter of editing it. So if you build a crummy prototype which is quicker and you get it out. First, you get information back quicker. But the other thing is people are willing to help you more with a crummy prototype, right? If you, had, if you build this beautiful, shiny, glowing thing, people say, ooh, I, bet, you know, I don't like it, but I better not say anything because you know, it's done. But if it's this crummy thing made out of cardboard with some glue on it, like stuck on it, they say, oh, I got an idea. You should do this. You should improve it this way. And, then, and so then the question for success is only how many of those iterations can you get in? How many times can you build a new idea, show it to people, all the stakeholders, and then have them help you, and then do it again and do it again. That's the key. Related to this is an example you give in your book of making ceramic pots. A teacher told half his class to make as many ceramic pots as they wanted, and the other half to put all their energy into making one best pot. 
Turns out the students who focused on quantity or lots of iterations rather than quality ironically made better pots. If you say to somebody, well, I'm only going to judge you on how wonderful the one pot is that you do versus make as many, don't, I don't care, make as many pots as you can, focusing on the quantity. And the, the study showed that focusing on the process and on quantity results in a much better pot. Lots better, lots of much better pots. We're talking about prototypes. Uh, yes. And Steve Jobs was a big user of prototypes, incidentally. Yes. Yes. And the reason I bring him up is he was one of your first clients. He was. How did you come to meet him? Yeah, he's probably one of them, our most important client. I met him because Apple was just getting started and my little company was just getting started. And I walked down one day and talked to a guy named Jerry Manick, who was the uh, the person who, who, he wasn't inside of Apple, but he was a little bit ahead of me at Stanford. He had designed the Apple II, which was the first computer. He was there, and we, I started talking to him. He said, oh, I need help at Apple. And we met Steve Jobs, and, and then, you know, we just started designing stuff. He's important uh, professionally to you, and also he introduced you to your wife. <laughs> yeah. Steve and I were kind of bachelors at the same time and kind of enjoyed hanging out a bit. Uh, he got married. I think it bothered him that <laughs> that I wasn't married. So one time he called me uh, and said, uh, it was Thanksgiving, and he said, uh, I found the girl for you. And I mm -hmm. said, Steve, you know, I trust you about, you know, like circuits and, you know, computers, but I don't trust you. I, you're no yentai. I, mean, I don't trust you about women. And he said, no, no, I got the right girl for you. You know, how he's so positive about everything, you know, and he had no, no uh, lack of confidence. So I said, I couldn't, I had a meeting in Sacramento. I said, I can't come. And then the meeting got canceled in Sacramento. And so he, um, I said, I called him. I said, are you still, you know, can I still come to Thanksgiving dinner? And I went and I met my wife and I met my future wife, Casey, there. And so Jobs, in addition to being kind of my most important client in, in the history of the company, he's probably um, also one of the most important people to me. And we had a long friendship. He helped me with the D school. He's in any kind of big decision. I always knew he'd be, you know how when you have friends and you're afraid they might not tell you the truth because they don't want to hurt your feelings? Hmm. That was not the case here. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to your professional life, why was he your most important client other than his uh, visibility was, was so vast and Apple is, you know, larger than life that other clients came to you? The most important thing he did for us was he had this way of doing everything with intention. I mean, like how you put it in the box was not an afterthought after you were done, right? And what color it was or how, the how it felt when the person touched it. At the time, companies were concerned about the engineering or the, the software, the hardware part of it. And the other stuff was just incidental. And he, he was not that way. And so not only did he do everything with intention, but he set a standard that was beyond what you thought you could do. So I think... For, for us and for every designer that's worked for him since then, they've all done their best work for him because he was so demanding. And he took you to a place where you didn't think you could even go. And we continued doing that. Even when we weren't working for Steve anymore, we, we had that in our, it was our habit to work in that way. I want to go back to the very early days of IDEO. Um, yes. Basically, when you were 26 years old, it wasn't called that at the time. It was called HK Design because your co-founder was Dean uh, Hovey. Yes. What was the mission for the company then? 
Um, the, the mission for the company was to enjoy being with your friends. Uh, at Boeing and at National Cash, where I worked before, it was kind of hard for me. I, you know, I didn't know anything. I was used to, like, having a good time with my friends in the summers. So I got to work, and I said, ooh, this is, you know, 12 months a year with, you know, like, people I don't know. When, when I had the chance to start the company, I had just gone through the Stanford program, and so I thought of myself as having these special skills and that um, other people might want them. So I'd go to see companies. It was hilarious. So I'd go to see companies, and I, like I'd go to see a furniture company, and I'd be in there with the CEO, and I'd say, we'd like to design a new chair for you, sir. And he'd, and he'd be asking questions like, what experience have you had designing chairs? And I didn't have the guts to say, not only haven't we haven't designed chairs, we haven't designed anything. <laughs> but what I said was, we have this process. We have this process, and I'll bet you it'll result in a different chair than the people who know have deep knowledge of designing chairs. Our chair will be different, and maybe you know it'll surprise you, and, and it built from there. What are other examples of important clients for you in the early days, aside from Apple? Um, there were lots of them. Uh, the first client we had was um, a reading machine for blind people. It was uh, called Telesensory Systems. It was uh, a thing where you put your hand in it and it raised the letters underneath, like with the little ne- kind of needles, like, you know, those pin art things where you put your face in them and it pushes the pins around. You know, we did bicycles and, you know, movie special effects and, you know, like whatever. I mean, because our thing's about a process, right? We're not experts. I mean, we've gained expertise in certain areas, but especially at that time, we were only experts at the process, not experts at any particular industry. Another person who has been influential on your career is Professor Albert Bandera. He's a Stanford psychologist, and he has this notion of guided mastery, which you've demonstrated in your book, for example, with a snake phobia. Can you explain briefly what that is and how you apply it to design? Albert Bandura is a, a famous psychologist. We just kind of discovered him, and I went and saw him in his office one day, and he's kind of like the world's expert on uh, self-efficacy, which is very related to creative confidence, which is he defines it as the, you have a sense of the world and that you can accomplish what you set out to do, that you feel like that. That's self-efficacy. What we found is that that we've been using guided mastery to get for people to get over this kind of fear of failure or fear of being judged, right? Whereas he was using guided mastery in all kinds of areas, including phobias, and that's what I found really interesting. So he'd have these patients who had a fear of like snakes or spiders their whole lives, and they weren't going outside or they weren't going on hikes because they might run into a snake. And so the way he got them out of that, and he had nearly 100% cure rate in a few hours, he uses guided mastery where he holds their hand and he takes them through a series of successes with respect to the snake. He, you know, you see the snake in the other room and it doesn't bother you. You see a friend with the snake. You look through a two-way mirror. You stand in an open door. I mean, you put a glove on. And it turns out we've been doing that with, with clients and companies and we've been doing it with students for years, which is they think of themselves as only analytical. We put them in teams. And then what we do is we do small projects with them and and they succeeded having a breakthrough idea in that small project. And then we take we make them a, a little more complex problem, you know, and a little more complex. And each time they succeed, and by the end, they say, "Oh my God, I'm creative," and they flip to a, this state of creative confidence where it changes their lives. I mean, I, I know I'm sounding a little like over the top, but it changes it changes their life completely. And they, in their own personal life, they kind of uh, take on more difficult challenges. They have more stick to It's a change. 
Bandura finds the same thing with the people who have been cured of phobias. How can you apply this approach to uh, organizations you've worked with? Mm -hmm. Give a specific example. Yes. So we use the same methodology, this guided mastery and this series of projects uh, to to help any culture be more uh, more creative. K-12 education is by far my favorite. We look at the San Francisco Unified School District and try to improve the experience that kids have lunch, right? You go in there, you look at it, and you find out that lunch really isn't about food for kids. It's about the socialization of seeing their friends at lunch. Mm-hmm. So all you really have to do is have them have a great experience meeting their friends, and then you can throw in a healthy lunch, you know, and and uh, and make a big impact on on improving that experience. Through the, these processes, you are empowering these organizations and these governments and these companies, giving them the confidence that they too are creative. Yeah, the end result is that a government or a company or an individual ends up with this confidence in their creative ability. It's like if you're a writer being challenged with a blank piece of paper, right? I mean, that's daunting, right? But if you have, uh, if you're mindful of a creative process that you own, that's in your body, and somebody gives you a difficult problem, you don't hesitate. You say, I know how to do this. How has your personal life changed as a result of being so empathetic and human-centered when it comes to helping organizations and companies with their products and services? I think I can tell when I'm in a room with people, I think I have a better sense by being empathetic what they want. And then it's easier to make the compromise. Okay, I'll give them what they want knowing what I want, right? It almost starts to feel like a sixth sense about um, what people care about. I mean, you know, it's the same as, you know, when you're driving and (laughs) letting somebody in or letting somebody cut in line with you in Starbucks because they're late. One of the things we do at the D School is we check in before every meeting. We go around and everybody checks in and they tell what's going on in their life so that Mm -hmm. I can treat them differently. I know if you're stressed because your mother's ill or your kid just had went to the hospital in an accident or this is your anniversary, I mean, I'm going to treat you differently because I know what's going on in your life rather than if you just start a business meeting, you kind of hold everybody to some neutral thing. Some people are having good days and some people are having bad days or some people are really happy to be at this meeting or some people wish they weren't there. The meeting's going to be different and we're going to treat each other different if we know that. Maybe I should have done a check-in before this interview. (laughs) What's going on in your life right now that I should know about (laughs) that might provide context? Well, I'm in New York, and I'm running around talking to lots of people, so it's not not my normal day of... Uh, I'm I'm missing my classes to come to come to New York and and talk about the book. You know I, I don't like to miss classes. I want to be there for the students, and so I have that angst. But uh, but I'm thrilled that you know from a place where people thought of design as kind of after you know the kind of painting something the right color at the end or making sure that it's pretty. That now you know we are getting to be able to have a, a strategic role. There's a, there was an IBM survey that said the creative ability of their employees was their number one concern. We've moved from being at kind of at the kids' table to the main table, and that, that's, that's why I'm very excited to be here and talk about this. 
I want to talk a little bit about the founding of the D School. You're a professor at Stanford. You've been there since 1978, and you always kind of made fun of yourself because they they wanted to find ways to give you a smaller office. What has changed in the ether in a way that you were able to convince the president, uh, John Hennessy, to create a whole school around this? Yes. So, um, you know, back when design was mostly in the art department or in at Stanford, it was in this kind of lightweight engineering mode. It, uh, it didn't fit in the model of the university of like depth and trying to win Nobel Prizes and all the other things that go on at university. And um, it really wasn't central to the university. What happened, I believe, is that as problems got more complex... And as new solutions needed to come up with that were not down the normal discipline path, they weren't deep in a narrow silo. The big ideas were coming in between the silos. And so something had to be done. So we started talking about T-shaped people. People had breadth and depth. And what happened was that uh, we started to have some success. I was an engineering professor, so I always taught in just straight engineering classes, right? But, you know, after tenure and I had some had some flexibility, I started teaching with other professors who were just my friends. And we knew that the university, John Hennessy, is really big on multidisciplinary teaching. I would bring up a business school professor, a computer science professor, and we would teach, and their students would come with them. I started to see the students' um, eyes light up as we did this. And so we just said, I went to the university and said, look, we should, we should codify this. I mean, I think this is a big deal. And we should start teaching cl- and do this in a systematic way and have an institute where, pe- where students would come from all around the university. And that eventually became the D-School. What's an example of big problems that you felt were were falling in between the silos of these specialized fields? Well, it's the big stuff. It's all, you know, it's like, you know, health care and transportation, sustainability, K-12. I mean, that's the stuff that we started working on. Those are the laboratories that eventually ended up at the D-School. Once you decided you wanted to institutionalize this, can you explain how you got the funding for it? One day I was... Um, in the office of Hasso Plattner, who's uh, one of the founders of SAP, the big German software company, and I, um, IDEA was doing a project for him, and uh, we were and we were kind of done with the business meeting. We were talking about things that we enjoyed doing, you know, and he was talking about sailing and and Formula One racing and stuff. He was involved, which I was really interested. In. And he said, you know, what are you interested? in? And I said, well, I'm really interested in this multidisciplinary teaching thing that I, I've been dreaming of. And to make a long story short, he said, well, I'll help you with that. So I went back to Stanford. And when I got back to Stanford, I was telling this story. And the people at Stanford said, you know, when a billionaire says he's willing to help you, you should probably call him right back. (laughs) (laughs) So he... um, he funded the whole thing. He put up $35 million. First round, $35 million. I mean, he said to me the other day, he put his arm around me and said, you know, this is one of the most important things I've done in my life. And needless to say, it's one of the most important things you've done in your life. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah, the most. I mean, it's um, it's affecting so many people. Seeing these kids in my office just, you know, after they've taken a couple of D-School classes and they're just emotionally so excited, you know, they always wanted to be a creative person. You've gotten into Stanford, but... You know, you you feel kind of, you know, the... Trapped. Trapped, yeah. The one that, like, ad agencies are the worst, right? They have this thing where they say there's the creatives and the non-creatives. Well, if you're in the non-creative group, how does that feel? These kids have been in the non-creative group. In, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a successful group, it's just a non-creative group, right? Mm-hmm. And so to add that tool, to add that muscle to your personality, uh, this confidence in your creativity, it's fun to be around these people. They're so happy. 
Oh, I'll tell you a great story. So in one of the interviews we did in the book was with a Buddhist monk, a former Buddhist monk named Jimpa. And Jimpa is the translator for the Dalai Lama. He's, uh, he's on the Compassion Project at Stanford where he's taking the monks and putting them in the scanner and looking at what happens in their brain when they're in a state of compassion. Uh, we were talking to him about uh, create our book, Creative Confidence and stuff, and he said, you know, there's really not a word in the Tibetan language for creative. I said, when he said, I said, so what's the, you know, what's a word that's close? And he said, well, the closest word is natural. That basically you want to be more creative, be more natural. And that, that it's only a question of taking away the stuff that got in the way of that. You know, the kinder, I love kindergartners, right? You go in and say to a, to a kindergartner, how many, you know, how many of you are artists? How many are you creative? Everybody raises their hand. And refrigerators are full of pictures, you know, that their parents supporting them. And somewhere about fourth grade or age nine, we start evaluating them and they start getting the message that we're saying and they opt out of this creativity. And that's got to stop. You've written a, a book with your brother, Tom Kelly, uh, Creative Confidence, Unleashing the Creative Potential Within Us All. And the catalyst f- for the book was your finding out, in a, in a way, was your finding out that you had throat cancer yes. in 2007. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so in 2007, uh, I was shocked. I was in my daughter's classroom, like helping the kids design new backpacks, you know, in the fourth grade. and. And I got a call from the doctor, and he said that the lump in my neck was not what they thought it was. It was cancer. And I struggled to complete the, the, you know, the project with my daughter. And then I came home, and uh, it, it, was, it was the bad kind, you know, 40% chance of survival. And so um, I struggled for quite a long time with, you know, with the cancer, but um, I'm in remission. My brother was there for me every day. And so... Uh, when he, um, when we got done, we decided we'd do a project together, and we came up with this book as the way to do it. Why do you think you are so close with your brother? Yeah, I don't know. I think you know it has a lot to do with my parents being so open. My parents were very um, kind of tolerant of things, you know, like uh, I'd get a bicycle when I was twelve, and and at, for Christmas, and on December the twenty sixth, I'd take it down and sandblast it and paint it a different color. It was perfectly good red bicycle, but I wanted it to be a different color. They just felt it was okay for us to do stuff. So when uh, we had a house that was too small, and so when my sister, one of my sisters, was born, my brother and I moved to the basement. So I think we were, you know, out of sight, out of mind a bit. So picture you're two boys and you're in the basement and <laughs> nobody's watching you, and you kind of have a good time. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thanks. My guest has been David Kelly, co-founder of IDEO. 